Amen. As we gather this morning, I want to begin by asking a very simple question. How many of us this morning have gotten everything figured out? We've gotten our life together. We know exactly where we're going. We know exactly where we'll end up. And we've gotten all the answers. Well, amen, you're in the right place. (laughs) Because you are gathered together with a bunch of other people who haven't gotten it figured out. Uh, And we are in desperate need of the grace of God. And so uh, we're glad that you're here. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 14 this morning. Now as you're turning there, as you're turning there, Matthew chapter 15, we remember uh, some context about the book of Matthew. Uh, This is going to be important this morning as we're studying because the book of Matthew was written to whom? All right, we're, we're going. I know you were distracted. You were all flipping, and 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 you weren't paying attention. So we're going to try that again. The book of Matthew was written to the Jews, and the book of Matthew was written to the Jews, and it was written by Matthew, and it was written to present Jesus as the son of David. Very good. And so we understand that the book of Matthew has a very Jewish and a very uh, a, a very authentically Israelite tone. It's different than the book of John, it's different than the book of Luke, it's different than the book of Mark. The book of Matthew has, it quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament, it quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel. Uh, It has an emphasis on the law. We see Jesus referred to as the son of David rather than the son of God. Matthew portrays Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messiah to the Jewish people. And so as we read this, as we read this passage, I want us to remember the audience to which Matthew was writing. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 14. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of, of father... Or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been, you might have been helped by has been given to God. And he is not to honor his father or his mother. And thus you have invalidated the word of God for your sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And after he called the multitude to him, he said to them, hear and, under, <clears throat> hear and understand, not what enters the mouth is what defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? And he said to him, he said to them, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Let's pray. God, as we hear this passage, Lord, may we see ourselves in this passage. May we see ourselves as the Pharisees who have held to the letter of the law while missing the very spirit of the law. May we see ourselves as those who hold on to the traditions of men and fail to see 
the heart of the law. Lord, may we see ourselves as the disciples, slow to hear, slow to understand. Lord, may you convict us of our arrogance. May you convict us of our pride. May you convict us of our short-sightedness. Or may you draw us to obedience. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, we remember, we remember that the Jewish people are obsessed with the law. Why are they obsessed with the law? There is, a, there is a legitimate reason why the Jewish people at this stage in history are obsessed with the law. Throughout history, there have been three pillars to the Israelite faith. We, we, we've talked about this before. I'm going to spend very, very brief time reviewing this. There are three pillars to the Israelite faith. One is the land. One is the land where the Israelites live. God said, I will give you a land, and this will be your land. And it will be from, from this mountain range to this mountain range, from this river to the, to the great sea. And he carved out for them the nation of Israel. And he said, I will give this land to you as a sign of the covenant. Well, at this point in Israel's history, they have been exiled from the land, and they no longer live in the land. They have been exiled by the Babylon, by the Assyrians first and the Babylonians and then they were taken over by the Persians and then the Persians were taken over by the Greeks and the Greeks were taken over by the Romans. And so the Israelites are living as strangers in their own land. And so one of the pillars of Israelites, the Israelites' faith, one of the pillars of the Jewish faith, the land has been cut out from under them. The second pillar of the Israelites' faith is not only the land but it's the temple. And so we have the Israelites under King Solomon, they built a house for God under Moses and under, under many of the other uh, uh, forefathers of the Israelite history. There was a tabernacle, but under, uh, under Solomon, they built a house for God and God dwelled, his very presence dwelled in that temple. Well, under the Babylonian exile, during the Babylonian exile, the temple of God was completely destroyed completely destroyed now we know that it was rebuilt under ezra and nehemiah and zerubbabel but it was never rebuilt to the same specifications it was never the same after the exile and so you have for the israelite people you have two of the pillars of their faith that that were completely destroyed and so the only thing left was the law for israel you had the land you had the law and you had the temple those were the three pillars of their faith And the land was taken from them. The temple was destroyed. And so the only thing left was the law. And they were completely and utterly obsessed with the law. How many of us have ever been obsessed with anything in our lives? I have a son who's about to be 12. And I love him with everything that I am. And he is absolutely, completely obsessed with anything LSU. With anything. If, if, if. If it has LSU on it, if it is written about LSU, if, if, if there is a radio show, if there is a, 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 an article on the internet, he has read it, he knows it, he, he, can, tell you, he can tell you what player a baseball player uh, what player baseball player is just by just by the number he can probably tell you what high school he went to where what what junior college he went to he can probably tell you uh, what his favorite what his favorite soft drink is he knows everything that there is to know about every player that has ever played will ever play at LSU and and in his mind there is no other college and and if you decide to go to another university well then you're you're just you're brain dead because why would anyone go to another college other than LSU? He, he, he wonders at times why there even are other universities. I mean, it, th- this is, 
Uh, I guess the only reason there are other universities is so LSU has somebody to beat, right? And he is absolutely, completely obsessed with LSU, so much so that whenever he was younger, uh, nine, ten years old, uh, he would wake up in the morning, and the first thing he would do was turn on Sports Center, and then, and then as the younger ones would wake up, and they would want to watch cartoons, or they would want to watch the Disney Channel, he would, he would leave there, and he would go to the computer, and immediately go to lsusports.net, so that he could read more about LSU, while the kids were watching cartoons, just, just completely obsessed, well, this is the level of obsession that the Israelites had, especially those religious leaders, had with the law. They were completely obsessed with the law because this was all they had left. The land was gone. The temple was gone. All they had left was the law. Now, it's important for us to understand that when we're talking about the law, we're talking about the Torah. We're talking about those laws that the Lord gave to Moses, those laws that the Lord gave to the Levites, those laws that are both uh, ceremonial, those laws that are both uh, moral, uh, everything from the Ten Commandments to uh, how we are to conduct ourselves in worship, how we are to conduct ourselves in temple, how we are to conduct ourselves uh, when it comes to to civil law. And so every aspect of the law, the, the Israelites, especially the religious leaders, were completely obsessed with. So much so that they were not only teaching the law of God as written down in the Pentateuch, as written down in, in, uh, in the Bible, but they were teaching oral tradition. They were teaching an expounded version of the law. The Ten Commandments say, Thou shalt, thou shalt remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. This is what it means to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Ten Commandments say, Honor your father and mother. This is what it means to honor your father and mother. So they had this oral tradition that had been added to to expound upon the law. And in right around the first century, right around 70 AD, around the final, uh, uh, during the, the final rebellion when the temple was finally destroyed by the Romans, the Jewish leaders wrote down these oral traditions in something called the Mishnah which would eventually be written down into something called the Talmud. And so we have a a literal representation of the oral law that was being taught in the time of the first century. And there is a reason why I'm telling you all this, not just to bore you and not uh, not just to give you some material to fall asleep to later on. But for the Jewish people and for the scribes and the Pharisees, there was no distinction between the law that was written down in the Bible and the oral tradition of the elders. It was one and the same. For them to hear, thou shalt remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, and for them to hear, that means you can only travel X amount of miles on the Sabbath day. That was the same thing. They equated the the oral traditions of the elders with the law of God. Therein lies the problem. And so... I want us to understand, I want us to understand that Israel was obsessed with the law. And because their obsession with the law, it led to an overemphasis on behavior and an underemphasis on the heart. For the Jew, there was no distinction between the tradition of the elders and the law. Now, I also want to remind you why this was, why this was so prevalent in the, in the days of Jesus. 
There has been 400 years between the time the last prophet prophesied and John the Baptist. So for 400 years, Israel has not heard from God. The last thing they heard was keep the law. Turn from your idolatry and keep the law. And now for 400 years, if you count a generation as 40 years, which there there are three different distinctions for generation, 40 years, 80 years, and 100 years. If we count a generation as 40 years, 10 generations has gone by and Israel has not heard from God. The last thing they heard from God was turn from your idolatry, keep the law. It's been 400 years since they heard from God. It's been 600 years since they were able to worship in the temple of Solomon. Yes, the the temple was rebuilt, but it wasn't the same. The last thing they have left is the law. And they thought this. If I can keep the law, if I can just hold to the letter of the law, then I can be righteous. If I can just keep the letter of the law, an overemphasis on the law leads to an emphasis, an overemphasis on behavior. And I want to remind us, church, God's desire is not right behavior. Right behavior is not the end. It is not our end desire. My desire is not that my children do what's right. We can train behavior, parents. I've said this over and over and over again. You can teach a dog not to pee on the carpet, but it's still a dog. Our desire for, my desire for my kids is not that they do what's right, but that they have a heart that serves the Lord, that they have a heart that is, that is contrite, that is broken, that is humble towards God. Our desire, church, is not right behavior. Our desire ought to be that our hearts are right before the Lord. Right behavior often leads to arrogance. Right behavior often leads to arrogance. Look at Romans chapter 9. I want us to see how Paul reiterates this thought. Paul encourages the church. He said, church, it's not about right behavior. It's not about right behavior. Romans chapter 9, I want us to look at verses 30 and 31. Paul says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. He says that Israel in their striving to keep the law, were they effective? Did it work? How did it wind up? How, How did it work out for the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees? Did they achieve righteousness? How did it work out for the rich young ruler? Did he achieve righteousness? He came to Jesus and he said, how do I get to heaven? Jesus gave what? He said, keep the law. His response was, oh, I've already done that. Jesus' response was, go sell all your possessions. Come follow me. He turned and hung his head and walked away because he had much possessions. Why? Jesus revealed his heart. So you may have kept the letter of the law, but the heart of the matter is what I desire. I desire a heart that desires to follow me. I desire a heart 
that comes after me. Paul said in Romans chapter 9 that the Israelites, in their effort to be righteous, in their effort to keep the law, in verse 31, he says, Israel, but Israel pursuing the law, did not arrive at that law. Even in their effort to be as right as they can possibly be, they failed. How many of us have ever tried to do something, tried to stop doing something, tried to to, to be good enough and failed? Anybody? Maybe you've you've wanted to to stop yelling at your kids, and then you go home, and and before you even get done with, with lunch, there's a lesson in the wrath of God, right? Maybe maybe you've maybe you've you've wanted to to you know to stop cursing or stop smoking or stop drinking or stop whatever it is. Maybe you want to just you know just stop talking about people. And then you leave church and the first thing you do when you get in the car is, oh my gosh, did you see what so and so was wearing? Our why? Because we have a heart that is deceitfully wicked. We have a heart that, that even when we try and do what is right, even when we, we put all these parameters around ourselves to keep us from doing what's wrong, we fail because we're human, because we're broken, because we are born into this world with a sin nature. And given a sin nature, if I have a propensity to sin, if I have a nature that is given towards sin, given the opportunity, I'm going to sin 10 times out of 10. If I brought two animals into this sanctuary, if I brought a tiger, Mike the tiger, and I set a pretty green, luscious salad with carrots and celery and tomatoes and cucumbers, and then I set a ribeye, bloody and raw, Mike the tiger comes down that aisle. Is he going for the salad or is he going for the ribeye? He's going for the ribeye. If he makes it down the salad, makes it down the aisle without eating one of you. He's going for the ribeye. Why? Because by nature, he's a carnivore. That's what he eats. Now we'll lock Mike up and then we'll bring a rabbit in so he doesn't eat the rabbit. And we set the same option in front of the rabbit. He's eating the salad. Why? Because by nature, he's an herbivore. He eats plants. By nature, we are sinners. We are liars. We are thieves. That's why you don't have to teach your children to lie. You have to teach them not to lie. You don't have to teach your children to cheat and steal and to be dishonest. They know how to do that because it is their nature. We can change our behavior externally, but it's not until our heart changes, it's not until our heart changes that we truly are changed. Notice notice 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Paul says this, he says, be careful because right behavior may lead to arrogance. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest you fall. 
And then he goes on to say in verse 13 that no temptation has overtaken you but such as common to man. And God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with every temptation provides a way of escape. He says just because you've been able to stop or just because you've been able to not participate in some wrong behavior up until this point, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Because the only way you've been able to resist temptation is by the grace of God. But for the grace of God, there go I. Right behavior is not our end desire, and right behavior often leads to arrogance. I want us to notice, I want us to notice the text. Go back to with me to Matthew chapter 5, or Matthew chapter 15. I want to point out to you what's going on here in the text. All right. So Jesus is with his disciples. The Pharisees come up and say, hey, your disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate dinner. Now, I want to point out to you that Jesus, that the Pharisees are not accusing the disciples of not simply washing their hands, but it is a reference to a ceremonial washing. They had washed their hands. They had taken the basin, they had washed their hands, and they were ready to eat. What the disciples had not participated in, had not done, was a ceremonial washing of their hands. The, the, the part of the oral tradition was that, that you must remain clean, especially before a meal. And there, are, there is a possibility that you would be involved in something called incidental uncleanliness. Uncleanliness was if you came in contact with anything that was unclean, with an unclean animal, with uh, a, a dead person, uh, with a, a dead animal, uh, anything that was considered by the law to be unclean. Well, you could also be unclean by indirect contact with something unclean. So, if you're in the marketplace and you shake hands with somebody who has touched something unclean, then you are indirectly in contact with something that is unclean, and so therefore you are incidentally unclean. Make sense? So, if somebody is, is, is in the market and they have, earlier in that day, they have come in contact with something unclean. Maybe they, maybe they accidentally touched a dead an, animal. Maybe they touched somebody who had touched somebody who touched something unclean. They are incidentally unclean. And so just in the, the average mundane course of life, it is inevitable that you're going to come in contact with someone or something unclean. And so what the oral tradition had said was that before you eat, not only do you have to wash your hands, but you have to do a ceremonial washing, which means that you would have to take a cup of water and pour it on your right hand twice with your palm, palms pointed up, fingers pointed up, so that the water would drip down off of your elbows. You couldn't do it like this because as the water cleansed this part of your hand, it would be dirty dripping off of your pink, off the end of your fingers, and the end of your fingers would be dirty. So you had to do it like this, and you had to pour it on your right hand twice, and then you had to take your right hand and pour it on your left hand twice, and then you would have to have somebody else pour it on both your hands together. Twice. So you had to do twice this hand, twice this hand, and then twice together. That was the ceremonial washing before you could eat, after you've already washed your hands. So that you would not be unclean eating and putting something into your body that was unclean. So the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we noticed that your disciples did not wash their hands like they were supposed to. And Jesus, you can imagine, Jesus just kind of rolls his eyes and like, oh my gosh. You've got to be kidding me. 
you are so hung up on the teachings and the, the oral traditions that aren't even the Word of God. And so what he does, notice what Jesus does. He doesn't even address the issue of his disciples washing their hands, does he? Look at the text. He says, verse 3, He answered them, Well, why do you yourselves transgress the law of God? Notice what they said. They said, why do your disciples not keep the oral traditions of the elders? They didn't. He didn't accuse them of not keeping the law, but to the Jewish people, the oral traditions and the law of God were one and the same. Jesus makes a harsher accusation. He says in verse 3, he says, but you yourselves, you, you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition." And then he points to them. He says, the Ten Commandments say honor your father and mother, but you found a loophole into not honoring your father and mother. What Jesus is talking about is there was an oral tradition. There was an oral tradition that the Pharisees had adopted that said you can earmark your assets to go to the temple to be given to the the work of God upon your death. And therefore, that would protect those assets from being used in any act of benevolence, including caring for your elderly parents. So what the Pharisees would do is they would take their assets and they would say, upon my death, I want to bequeath all of my assets to the temple and to the Levites and to the ministry of the temple. And therefore, all of their assets were essentially protected from being, from being used for benevolence for the needy, for the poor, for the widow, even for their, their elderly parents. And Jesus says your oral traditions have gone against the very spirit of the law. You have created these, these, these laws and expounded the law so much so that you miss the heart of the law. God's desire is not that we keep the letter of the law, church. God's desire is a contrite heart. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm chapter 51. Bo quoted from this passage earlier this morning. As David is confronted with his sin, as David is confronted with his adultery with Bathsheba, he writes Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. We read in, we read in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. But I want us to look at verse 16 and 17. David, king of Israel, recognizes this. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Now keep in mind, the law of God commanded sacrifice. It commanded that at certain times of the year, at certain times of the day, at certain times of the month, that the faithful Israelite would sacrifice. But notice David said, you do not delight in sacrifice, or else I would give it, because David understood this next verse. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The reason the Israelites were commanded to give a sacrifice was as a representation of their heart. Not to keep the letter of the law. God's desire for us, church, is a broken and contrite heart. I want us to understand the work of the law. God desires to use the law to bring us to our need for grace. The law of God is designed to render us guilty. It is designed to render us in complete and utter bankruptcy before the God of mercy. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You know, we just began, uh, we just began last week a, a campaign that we are raising money for uh, the renovation of our sanctuary. Uh, I love the pink carpet. I love the pink pews. But by the grace of God, they have run their course. Amen? Amen. They were, they, pink, uh, I, I'm so thankful that 1984, pink was the end color. And I'm so thankful that in 2016, it isn't. And so uh, we, we began uh, last week raising money and we are going to, uh, to renovate our sanctuary and we're going to turn things around. We're going to put the stage over there. We're going to get chairs in here. We're going to change the carpet. We're, but, but, but we're raising money for it because, because money doesn't grow on trees, right? And, and so, so we began raising money. We began asking the church to give above and beyond their tithe. But something that encourages me is that God doesn't need my money. Do you realize that? God does not need my gift. The scripture tells me that God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. The scripture tells me that everything is His. That everything is His. Every dollar in every bank account is His. That God has the whole world at his disposal. And he doesn't need what I have. There's an old Baptist hymn that said, God just needs a few good men. And, and I understand the sentiment, but that is just bad theology. God does not need you and I. In his grace and in his mercy and in his sovereignty, God chooses to use you and I, but he doesn't need me. God, had, God chose to work through a, through a donkey. And every Sunday morning, I'm thankful that he still works through a donkey. God doesn't need you and I. He doesn't need our gifts. He doesn't need your checkbook. He doesn't need your offering. But he calls us to be a cheerful giver. Because he does not delight in sacrifices, but he delights in a heart that is given to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. This is an illustration of that. Let each one do just as he purposed in his heart, not begrudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
It has nothing to do with what we give and everything to do with the heart in which we give. And God will take that gift and multiply it and grow it and use it for His glory. Because God is not concerned with the act. God is not concerned with the the keeping of the law. But God is concerned with our heart. The sacrifices to God are a contrite heart and a broken spirit. The work of the law was never to fix our heart. The work of the law was to reveal the bankruptness within our heart. I want us to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 21. And while you're turning to Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, I want to read to you Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah, the prophet, as he's prophesying to Israel, warning them to flee from their idolatry, for the judgment of God is coming. He writes in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. He said, The heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand? And when we think that we're doing what's right, when we've convinced ourselves that our behavior is good enough, then we become prideful and arrogant and the heart is deceitful above all else. Desperately sick. Who can know it? And the purpose of the law is to reveal the condition of my heart. Romans chapter... uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. No, Romans chapter 8, I'm sorry. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on later to say, For the heart of the flesh is hostile towards God, and it does not submit itself to God's law, for it's not even able to do so. The mindset on the flesh, the heart of the man, is desperately sick. And we can't do what's right. Why? Because we're like that tiger coming down this aisle. Our nature is bent towards sin. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Paul writes to the church at Galatia. Churches at Galatia. And he says this. He says, Therefore the law has become our schoolmaster, our tutor, to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. The purpose of the law was never to get us to be good enough. It was never to get us to do right. The purpose, of the, the purpose for the law was to reveal to us how broken we really are. It's to reveal to us that even if we are like the Pharisees and keep the letter of the law to the nth degree, we are still not good enough. And when we find ourselves guilty, broken before a holy judge, the only response is to cast ourselves at the feet of the cross and say, I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. Nothing that I have ever done, nothing that I will ever do will ever be good enough. Have mercy upon me. Show me grace. The purpose for the law was to bring us to grace. Church, some of us, on the other side of our salvation, 
have sought to keep the letter of the law. Forgetting that it is by grace we have been saved through faith, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. On the other side of salvation, we say, okay, I understand that I am saved by grace, but I am kept by works. No, church. We are saved by grace. We are kept by grace. We are brought into eternity by grace. It is all by grace. I was reminded this week of a friend of mine's at a sister church here in town, and they have uh, hand sanitizer posted all uh, uh, installed all around their church building, and above it it says "Give us clean hands," and and uh, you stick your hand under there and you get your hand sanitizer. And uh, he said, "You know, I, I was noticing the other day that we say give us clean hands, and yet." We have to work for it. It is an exercise. It's an exercise in our practical theology. We will sit from the pulpit and we'll say we are saved by grace and kept by grace and brought into eternity by grace and all by grace. And yet we live our lives under the, under the oppression of the law. Not realizing that the grace of God has freed us from the bondage of the law. Jesus fulfills the law for us. Jesus endured the wrath of God for us, and He calls us to live for Him by grace. Let's pray. God, we thank You that we are not under the law. We thank You that the law could not do for us what grace has done for us. We thank You that while we are Pharisees, while we are religious zealots, Lord, that you gave us grace. There's some of us here this morning who you have been striving your whole life to be good enough for God. You've tried to stop this or stop that. Under your own power, under your own strength, you've created accountability and and you have tried as hard as you possibly can to keep the letter of the law only to find yourself failing time and time again. If that's you this morning, let me invite you to stop trying to be good enough just cry out to Jesus for grace. Because even your best is not good enough. But I'm so thankful, so grateful that the Word of God said that God demonstrated His great love for us and that while we were sinners, while we were liars, while we were thieves, While we were Pharisees, Jesus died for us. Endured the wrath of God for us. God, thank you for grace. There's some of us here this morning who are Pharisees. 
we've been the recipients of the grace of God, yet we have, we have emphasized over and over again right behavior. And God has convicted you this morning. Maybe you need to come to this altar. Get on your face before God. Maybe you need to grab somebody with you. May this morning be a moment where you do business with God. We're going to sing a hymn of the faithfulness of God. The Word of God tells us that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness and cleanse us. Maybe you're out there and you say, Preacher, you don't know what I've done. You're absolutely right, I don't. But I know that there is nowhere, there's nothing that is beyond the reach of my God. The Word of God says where sin increases, their grace increases that much more. Today is the day of grace. God, may you move in this place this morning. May you draw men unto yourselves. May today be the day where your Holy Spirit has the freedom to move in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.